bring my memory with me. That way I don't have to remember things. The first time I, well, the first time I used the program on here that I figured out a cool password for that I would never forget, I started our adult Bible study and I had to ask Abigail what the password was. But now I do remember. I'm sure all of you have seen, whether it's on YouTube or um, different places where you'll have interviewers that come around and they'll ask people different things. They'll ask them some things to test their historical knowledge. Sometimes they will ask them things uh, political to see what they know about the political scene. Um, A particular interviewer asked a passerby, uh, Sir, he said, we're testing general knowledge of the Bible. Do you think you could tell us the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yes, that's easy. That's an easy question, the man replied. And then he continued to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Once there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked him. And as he went along, he didn't have any money, and he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a thousand changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously. And when he went under a juniper tree, his hair got caught, and he hung there many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate 5,000 loaves and two fishes. One night, when he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he fell on stony ground. But he got up, and he went on, and it started to rain. And it rained 40 days and 40 nights. So he hid himself in a cave, and he lived on locusts and wild honey, Then he went on, and he met a servant who said, Come and take supper with me. But he made an excuse and said, I've married a wife, and I cannot come. But the servant went out onto the highways and hedges and compelled him to come in. After supper, he went on and came down to Jericho. And when he got there, he looked up and saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting down, way up high in a window, and she laughed at him. And he said, Throw her down from there. And they threw her down from there. And he said, throw her down again, and they threw her down again, 70 times 7. And of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full, besides women and children. And they said, blessed are the peacemakers, now in the judgment, whose wife do you think she will be? So when we hear that little story, that little narrative, if you're a preacher, you can pretty well jump into any topic from after using that illustration But we recognize that the person there has a lot of content, but they don't understand how it all fits together. And as in our Christian walk, we want to understand carefully um, the importance of various aspects of the gospel. We want to understand where the resurrection fits, why it's important. As I was in um, Winkler one day, I got talking to a couple of people and I asked them, what was the significance of the resurrection? And one of the things they said, well, we know that the Lord Jesus has kept his word. And that's true. He has kept his word. That's, by the way, going to be point number one. Um, When we look at the resurrection today and look at the scripture that has been read, I want to look at it on three points. One is that Christ has kept his word, and so he's a faithful witness. Um, We can take him at his word no matter what he says. When he says things like, no man comes to the Father but by me, or all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. Christ is therefore the true and faithful witness. Even though Christ died, he lives now forever. He will never die again. 
because the believer is guaranteed that he or she will be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be conformed to the image of Christ, according to Romans 8.29. So the believers are guaranteed to be glorified with the Lord. We can take him at his word when he tells us that as well. Another thing that's very important is, if you have ever been plagued by doubts of being acceptable to God, even though you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you hold him as your only hope of eternal salvation, remember this. God has raised Christ from the dead, And in so doing, he is declaring for all time that Christ's sacrifice is perfect and perfectly acceptable to himself. Christ's sacrifice was for me, it was for you, and so we are perfectly acceptable to God because we are in Christ. We are accepted in the beloved for all time. Our acceptability to God is based on Christ's perfection. It is not diminished by our our own personal imperfections or by our sin. Our daily fellowship, on the other hand, with God, it it is affected by our behavior. There's no question about that. But our acceptability in God's sight is fully and finally accomplished by the work of Christ in his death, paying the full payment for all of our sin, his burial, tasting the death for every person, and his resurrection, which guarantees the resurrection of all believers. Let's look at the text and just see how it expresses some of these central truths of the resurrection. One thing to note is that the majority of the verses in this chapter, um, which is stated to be a reminder of the gospel, they directly state or they allude to the resurrection. Well over 90% of the verses talk about the resurrection in this chapter. If we are to understand from 1 Corinthians 15 the importance of the resurrection um, to the gospel, we could say that without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. The good news hinges on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is also why the scriptures such as Romans 10.9 say that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We recognize that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of our sin on Calvary. He was crucified, but of course in his day many people were crucified. So what makes his death different than everyone else that was crucified. Well, the believer recognizes that God was exacting from Christ the full and final payment for all sin of all time. So John said when he saw the Lord Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The significant difference between Christ and everyone else who was ever crucified is that he was resurrected to a glorified body which he had before the world was, as he declared in John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory that I had before the world was. And we as believers in Christ are promised the same glorification. In Romans 8, 17, it says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If it so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together with him. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. We are guaranteed a glorified body, the same as the Lord has. 
The fact that Christ dwells in believers is the guarantee that we who believe will be glorified as he is. Christ dwells in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the earnest, the scripture sometimes declares, of our uh, salvation. That is a down payment, securing the full and final glorification of the believer. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we read, In whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of our body, which is also in the scripture called the purchased possession. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Lord Jesus then owns us on two counts at least. One, because he created us, and two, because he bought us from the slave market of sin, he bought us from servitude to the devil. It is this truth that we are owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, upon which the New Testament writers appeal, or they implore us, they beseech us to live a life according to the will of Christ, reflecting the glory of Christ to a lost world. This appearing with him in glory is accomplished, as we will see at the rapture, when the Lord returns to take us to be with him. We read already in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall all, not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. At the very end, in verse 58, it talks about, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is our labor not in vain in the Lord? Because the Lord Jesus is returning to take us to be where he is, as he promised in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So one of the practical reasons that we believe in the resurrection is that our glorification to a glorified body with the Lord Jesus Christ is assured by the resurrection. In Colossians 3, 4, it says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him also in glory. Regarding the truthfulness of Christ as a witness to the resurrection, we notice that in the first four verses of this um, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we have the gospel presented, and immediately following that, in verses 5 to 8, we see that there were over 500 witnesses still available that could be cross-examined regarding the resurrection. Jesus declared himself that he would be resurrected, but in addition to that, he had hundreds of witnesses who could attest to the fact. So after, he, after Paul has explained how many witnesses are still available for anyone to ask regarding the resurrection, he goes on to say in verses 9 to 11, 
He explains the grace of God in selecting him as an apostle. But moreover, he explains the truth that all of the apostles preached the same gospel. They didn't preach a different one. One person didn't say this, another person say that. Everyone preached the same gospel. They all preached Christ um, crucified, buried, and resurrected. They all preached the resurrection of Christ. Even with this personal eyewitness testimony, however, there were apparently, according to verse 12, those among them who denied the resurrection. We, we could ask, how could that possibly be? What evidence did these people have, or by what authority did they make such a claim? Well, the fact is they have no authority to make the claim because they are contradicting the word of God, both in its predictions and in its fulfillment. They have no evidence to support their claim because they would have to produce the body of Christ in order to have any evidence to support their claim. Third, however, these false teachers were there for a reason. Believe it or not, they were in the assembly for a reason. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 11.19. In 1 Corinthians 11.19 it says, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made known among you. Notice that it doesn't say that there may be heresies among you. It says there must be. There must be to show who is approved. That's very significant. We must be careful in our day as well to see that we teach the scripture alone. One of the tenets of the Reformation is the term sola scriptura, which means only the scripture. Um, Those who in the Reformation had come out of the Catholic Church, where the church had authority and the church declared what was true. They didn't care whether it was according to the scripture. The reformers realized that was wrong. They said, no, the scripture alone has authority. Yet some of these very reformers, actually by their theologies, actually violated the very principle that they said they held to. So we have to be careful that we stick to the scripture alone. In verse 12, he asks, how, how can it be that some among you say there is no resurrection? By what authority do you make the statement? In light of the fact that all of the apostles preach that Christ is resurrected, and at least 500 people attest to the fact, and verse 4 shows that the scripture must be fulfilled which declare that truth, these false teachers were then shown that they were not approved as teachers of the gospel. They were, in fact, heretics. Continuing on, Paul goes to verses 13 through 19, where he briefly explains why it's important to believe in the resurrection. He said, if Christ is not raised, then there is no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, our faith is useless. And if there is no resurrection, we still have sin on our account. And if we only have hope in Christ for this life, we are to be pitied among all men. Continuing on, Paul, in verses 20 through 23, Paul explains the logical order of the resurrection. Christ is the first one resurrected. The first one resurrected to a glorified body. Not the first person ever resurrected. We know that Jesus himself raised some people from from the dead. However, they would die again, and they didn't have glorified bodies at that time. So Christ was the first one resurrected to a glorified body fit for heaven. 
So the first person raised from the dead is the Lord Jesus, who fulfills the feast of first fruits. And then those who are believers will be resurrected at the rapture when the Lord returns when we meet him in the air. And we saw that in verse 51 where it said, Behold, I show you a mystery. But also in 1 Thessalonians, Paul explains the same thing in chapter 4, verse 16. And the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It is a comforting thing to know the Lord is coming back for us, coming to return to take us to be with him in heaven forever. Now, the resurrection is not a New Testament concept. It was um, explained in the Old Testament. Um, Job realized that he would see the Lord upon this earth one day. He mentioned that in Job chapter 19, where he said, And after my skin, worms shall destroy my flesh, yet I shall see God. My eyes will behold him and not another, even though my reins be consumed within me. So Job was looking forward to the time when he would see the Lord Jesus stand on the earth and he would see him in person. He knew he would be resurrected. He understood that truth. We recognize the same of Abraham. We don't get it in Genesis when they're talking about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. But if we go into Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 19, it says that what Abraham was thinking when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, he, was, he knew that Isaac was the promised one, that the promised child that God had given him, and that his seed would be reckoned through Isaac. So now God is saying to Abraham, go and sacrifice Isaac. But apparently, according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead. So he was looking forward actually to an immediate, a fairly immediate resurrection of Isaac, even though God was asking him to sacrifice him. So the teaching on the resurrection does not begin in the New Testament. It's well established in the Old Testament. We know that the Lord Jesus, of course, had to defend the resurrection against the Sadducees, who said there was no resurrection, and they claimed to only believe the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus goes back into the first five books of the Bible, and he shows them how they did not know the Scripture, and they did not know the power of God, because God had declared to Moses, when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. He didn't say, I was the God of Isaac or of Jacob. He is, present tense. They were still alive. So the Lord Jesus showed the Sadducees that, in fact, the resurrection was declared in the very scriptures that they said they believed, but he showed them that they did not know the scripture, nor did they know the power of God. Jesus also predicted his resurrection when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, although the disciples did not understand that Jesus must soon die and be resurrected, they eventually were dramatically changed from being timid followers to fearful, or fearless, that is, fearless defenders of the resurrected Lord. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they abandoned him, some even denying to know him. 
But yet after they were endued with power from the Holy Spirit at the inauguration of the, of the church, they preached his name boldly to whoever they spoke to, whether it was kings, governors, religious leaders, or other authorities. In Acts 4.13 it tells us, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now before these apostles had received the Holy Spirit, it says in John chapter 20, verse 19, that the same evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So before they received the Holy Spirit and the power from God, they were fearful of the Jews once they received the Spirit at the inauguration of the church and, of course, at the first coming of the Holy Spirit to uh, indwell believers of the church. Then they were endued with power from God and they were bold in their speech. Even from a practical, charitable viewpoint, the Lord Jesus applied the truth of the resurrection. In Luke chapter 14, he tells them this. He said, when you make a feast, call the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot pay you back. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So even as far as being charitable, the Lord Jesus was telling people, be charitable because you can count on the fact that at the resurrection, you're going to be repaid. It tells us the same in Proverbs, I think it's 19.14, where it talks about the person that is um, kind toward the poor actually lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. So you're not lending to the poor man. When you actually give to a person who is genuinely in need, you're actually lending to the Lord, and the Lord will repay you. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here with the resurrection of the just. So the reliability of uh, the witnesses to the resurrection, whether it's the Lord Jesus or the disciples, it's well supported in the scripture, um, both historically and scripturally. We know, therefore, that we can trust the scripture in its entirety, If God can create life where none exists, he can surely raise our lifeless bodies to a glorious state that he has promised us. Finally, our guaranteed acceptability in God's sight. The resurrection is proof positive that the offering of Jesus was acceptable by God and the effects of it make us perfect, perfect forever, holy, and recipients of all spiritual blessings and complete in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. But who is the truth? Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? So Jesus is saying, I sanctify myself, that they might be sanctified through me. And that is how we are made acceptable to God. We are sanctified through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, this is in Acts 20, 32, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. 
For both he that sanctifies, that's the Lord Jesus, and the sanctified, that's us who believe in him, we are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The Lord Jesus, believe it or not, is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Because we have trusted him as Savior. And we are all one. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are placed into the body of Christ. We all become one. In Hebrews 10, verse 10 and also 14, it it tells us this. By God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One offering, one time, once for all. And by one offering, he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. The Lord Jesus perfects us. We do not perfect ourselves. He did that with his offering. We are completely perfected in Christ, and we stand completely acceptable to God. So the resurrection is important to us because we are sanctified, and we are perfected forever by it. But this is not all. We also have all spiritual blessings in Christ. In Ephesians 1.13 it tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. If we have all spiritual blessings in Christ, how many do we lack? How many spiritual blessings do we lack? We lack none, because we have all spiritual blessings given to us. In Christ, we lack no spiritual gift. We, we lack no spiritual blessing. We have everything in Christ, and we are complete in Him, which means we lack nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2:8 tells us, "Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." For in him, that's in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So we are complete in Christ, and in Christ we lack no good thing. In Romans 8.32 it tells us that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. We have all things in Christ. We do not earn spiritual blessings by our works. We have them all as a gift from God given to us. We are also accepted by God because of the finished work of Christ, punctuated and confirmed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Ephesians 1.6 tells us, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in Christ. We need never doubt our acceptability in the sight of God, because the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected. Something very important about the resurrection is that it guarantees that God accepted the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. If God had not accepted the sacrifice of Christ, he would have left him in the grave. But he didn't. He reached, reached down, raised him from the dead. Christ is seated now at the right hand of God, where he intercedes for us. God has declared by that resurrection that he has the perfect sacrifice Christ has made, makes us perfectly acceptable to God for all time. We could go on and talk about the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of the finished work of Christ, that he will that he will conclude the work that he has begun with us. 
But in summary, let's just say that the resurrection is central to the gospel. In fact, without it, there is no gospel. There is no good news. Jesus has kept his word regarding his own resurrection and has shown that he is the creator of life who can give life to the lifeless. Therefore, our own resurrection is assured and our future glorification to be like Christ is proven true as well. The resurrection of Christ himself guarantees our glorification because we will be like him. He is now in a glorified state and we shall be in due time. Finally, if we have ever doubted our acceptability in God's sight and yet we are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, doubt it no longer because the resurrection proves that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and God is satisfied with Christ's offering. One perfectly acceptable offering for all sin of all time, your sin and my sin fully and finally paid for by one perfect sacrifice once for all. The question is, are we satisfied with this sacrifice? Are you satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ? Am I? Are we willing to trust in Christ alone? I pray that we may be willing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve God within the liberty with which God has made us free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we offer thanks to you for your word. We thank you for the great gift that Christ has given to us. We thank you that you accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, as the scripture says, that he has taken away the sin of the world. And now we stand before you accepted in the beloved. We want to give you honor and praise for what you do and what you shall do through us in future days. In Christ's name we pray.